rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to episode 33 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the only podcast covering Superman's adventures from 1970 to 1986. I am your host, Charlie Niemeyer, and today we're going to check out the books with an October 1972 cover date. But first, I should remind you that Superman of the Bronze Age is sponsored by Discount Comic Book Service. Want to keep up on all your favorite comics, graphic novels, and collected editions, but don't want to pay full retail price? Look no further than Discount Comic Book Service. DCBS is an online comic book retailer that offers comic fans the comics they need at the prices they want. With monthly specials that range from 45 to 75% off the retail price, and over 13,000 individual collected editions and graphic novels in stock, DCBS is the one-stop shop that every comic fan longs for. You can find them on the web at www.dcbserdice.com. Also, please be sure to check out their, visit, their sister stores, In Stock Trades, and My Digital Comics. Um, I also want to remind everyone about the new RSS and iTunes feeds for the show, and that I'll only be adding episodes to both sets of feeds until the end of October, so make sure you switch over soon. I have an email I'd like to read real quick. Uh, it came from Steve Rogers, and I apologize that I'm just now reading this, Steve. It's um, Actually, this is the, I think I forgot to read it last time, and I apologize. In any event... Uh, the t title is Stratomatic. As you recall, on a previous episode, there was an ad for the Stratomatic, and I had no idea what it was. Well, good old Steve, he uh, he explains it for me. Uh, he writes, "Hey Chuck, just giving you a little 411 on Stratomatic from an email I sent to John, and well, at the time, Michael Kaiser at the late and lamented Mighty Shield after they came upon the same ad during the Silver Age Avengers issue. So this is part of the quote." This, I kind of want to say, could very well be a distant relative of Dungeons and & Dragons and other collectible card games and RPGs that, I, that would get their start in the 70s, including the comic book companies themselves, as I did play a Marvel one with some friends back in the late 80s. So, it was what it was. Essentially, you, you and friends could play by using real player stats on game cards and other game pieces. Die, I want to say a game board was also used in primitive stages, and you could say, and you could be say, yes, I know, oh, <laughs> um, and so, and you could be, say, the New York Yankees and the San Francisco Giants, and since we were talking the 60s, replay the 1962 World Series and have Willie McCovey's liner go past Bobby Richardson and the Giants wind up winning the 1962 World Series. Keep in mind, that, again, he wrote this to uh, a show covering Silver Age comics. Speaking of which, Soon after, there actually was a rival board game that actually called themselves Challenge the Yankees. Anyway, that is more than you probably want to know, so I'll end it here. But just wanted to go on record saying that it could very well be considered the first RPG, even if it only is in a kind of, sort of way. And Steve also asked me to send him a scan of that ad, um, which I'm going to get around to soon. Sorry, Steve. Apparently, he got a kind of morbid chill from it if it was the first time the ad ran. See, Hodges, as in the New York's Mets manager, Gil Hodges, had died on April 2nd of 72, which makes it kind of strange that they kept his name in the ad when the books wouldn't wind up on the shelves until July. Uh, he's on a Met message board that likes seeing Met-related stuff, and an ad mentioning a recently deceased manager in the present tense would be interesting to see. So, thank you for writing, Steve, and like I said, I will get you that ad as soon as I can. I've just been kind of swamped with stuff, which is why I'm recording this episode two days after it was supposed to actually be available to download. So, I'm going to get right into the, uh, right on with the show after a couple of promos. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, kids, comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. 
Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. It's short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. We talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics. And then we talk about them. Because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages Comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com Take the mightiest superheroes on Earth. Each an invincible champion of justice. Band them together in a common cause against crime and evil. And you have the The Justice Justice League of America. And now their adventures are being chronicled on the Podcast of Justice. A bi-weekly podcast covering every issue of the Justice League from the Silver Age to today. Join hosts Charlie Niemeyer. Isaac Frisbee at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com Presenting Superman. Okay, first up this month or week is Superman 270 270? Wow, I wish. Uh, Is Superman 257 with an on-sale date of August 8th 1972 and a cover price of 19, 19 nothing of 20 cents and cover art by Nick Carty which actually does a pretty good representation of an issue of an image we see later on in the story the title of the first story in this issue is Superman battles the Warhorn written by did I say Warhorn War, yeah Warhorn written by Carrie Bates penciled by Kurt Swan inked by Murphy Anderson and edited by Julie Schwartz and unfortunately this story has not yet been reprinted one day at the seemingly abandoned but apparently famous Metropolis Pier we get a blast from the past as Clark Kent Lois Lane Jimmy Olsen and Perry White are enjoying a lunchtime reunion that is until an inhuman shape splashes down into the ocean nearby making shockwaves that cause the pier to start cracking apart Running up to a cab, Clark gets the others inside, but refuses to get in due to a city ordinance that limits three passengers to a cab. So once the cab drives off, Clark purposely causes himself to fall through the pier, changes to Superman, and dives down into the water using seaweed to temporarily reinforce the pier's beams. Then investigating the underwater disturbance, he discovers that it was an alien warrior that crashed in the uh, crashed to the earth or into the ocean earlier. An alien war wearing an alien warrior wearing a strange device on its back called the Warhorn. Revealing te- telepathic abilities, the alien tells Superman that he can use it to cause the ocean to attack the Man of Steel, and then proceeds to demonstrate this by using the Warhorn to create a water jet that propels Superman across the Atlantic before he's finally able to get away from it. Heading back to the WGBS building in Metropolis, Superman changes back to Clark and meets up with Jimmy, who shows some footage of a fish in the harbor acting crazy, which Jimmy believes is connected somehow to whatever plunged into the harbor earlier. When the reporters get a report of a hulking alien seen in the woods north of Metropolis and all the plant life in the woods dying, Clark runs off, changing to Superman and flying to investigate. But the alien was hiding underground and uses the but the alien is hiding underground and uses the warhorn to hit Superman with a geyser, then commands the Earth to trap Superman. And then, after telling Superman that he cannot be defeated without killing him, the alien causes some magma to engulf our hero. But since we've seen Superman fly into the heart of a sun, this obviously doesn't hurt him, and he breaks out, landing a good right hook square on the alien's jaw. So Superman starts to fly off with the alien, but the Warhorn apparently doesn't need the alien to be conscious because it causes some trees to attack Superman, which keeps him busy long enough for the alien and Warhorn to escape again. By the time he gets free, Superman spots three fires popping up, but but has difficulty blowing each of them out. A supervision scan reveals that the area is lacking in nitrogen, and with the fishy behavior from earlier and the dead vegetation, Superman concludes that the alien is stealing the Earth's nitrogen. 
Superman catches up to the alien, but is immediately trapped in a storm cloud. And the alien promises that if Superman tries to escape, the resulting super thunderclap will deafen everyone on Earth. So Superman tries pleading with the alien to stop taking Earth's nitrogen, but the alien says that he's just following his orders. Caught at a crossroads, since it appears that the only way to stop the alien means breaking Superman's moral code, Superman uses a blast of super cold breath to freeze the water vapor which dissolves the cloud, then clumps together enough frozen water to create a hailstone. He then throws it at the alien, knocking him out. Knowing that the Warhorn can't be sure what Superman is thinking, he acts like he's going to deliver a fatal blow, which causes the Warhorn to protect his master and transport the alien back home. This leaves Superman feeling that he must stay on guard in case the Warhorn ever returns. And I thought this was a pretty fun story with some great art. Uh, some of the effects that were used while Superman was in the water and in the storm cloud were actually pretty cool and probably took a little longer than normal. Uh, and I kind of like how the story ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. I don't know if the Warhorn ever returns, but I'm not going to look ahead. Uh, and so I'll pretty much be surprised with the rest of you. A uh, couple notes that I have, though, on page one. As nice as it is to see the, the quote-unquote Fab Four together again, what, uh, that famous Metropolis Pier is pretty empty. In fact, they're the only four people on the pier. And even though two more people show up on the next page, it maybe it's off-season, but it would have been nice to see more people. But it also could be a time thing. I mean, Kurtzwan only has a certain amount of time to draw these things. And on page three... There is a page in the Krypton Chronicles book um, that actually shows Murphy Anderson inking this page, and it's pretty cool because it's only half inked when they show it. So I, mean, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. This is just really cool to look at. Everyone knows that baby Kal-El was sent from Krypton to Earth by his parents, Jor-El and Lara, shortly before the planet was torn apart by violent internal pressures. But what else do we really know about Krypton and its history? Journey with us now as we explore the Fabulous World of Krypton. And our backup story is The Greatest Green Lantern of All, written by Elliot S. Magan, from an idea that he got from Neil Adams. Penciled by Dick Dillon, inked by Dick Giordano, and of course edited by... Julie Schwartz, excuse me. And this story was reprinted a few times. Uh, first, in the greatest team-up stories ever told hardcover from 1990, which is weird because there's no teaming up in here. Uh, second, and the greatest team-up stories ever told trade paperback version, also from 1990. And on in the Superman, the World of Krypton trade paperback from 2008. Could have sworn it was in the greatest Superman stories ever told, but I'm probably wrong. Our story begins with the Green Lantern Tomar Ray flying across the cosmos to the planet Oa to meet with the Guardians of the Universe on what is to be his last day as a Green Lantern. As such, the Guardians decide that it is time to let him in on the secret of what Tomar believes as is his greatest failure, the destruction of Krypton. You see, years ago, back when Tomar Ray's probationary period was just ending, the Guardians had decided that their eons-old experiment of the Green Lantern Corps was a success, and that it was time to let the Corps become independent of the Guardians. But while there was currently no Green Lantern with the qualities to lead them, they believed that there soon would be. You see, a young couple on Krypton, a young scientist named Jorel, and an astronaut named Laura, Lara, sorry, had just married, and while individually they would make excellent Green Lanterns, they believe that their offspring could be the greatest Green Lantern of all. But the planet is due to explode soon due to internal pressures, so Tomar Ray was dispatched to send the element Stellarium into the Krypton core to absorb the radi radiation that was causing those internal pressures. 
See, if Krypton's destruction is pre completely prevented, Krypton's erratic magnetic field would actually cause other stars in the sector to flare up and destroy entire systems. And teleporting the entire population of Krypton away would take away the Kryptonians' independence and their civilization would just wither away. Unfortunately, while Tomar is busy doing that, things get a little worse on Krypton. And this part of the story, we already know. Although Jorel had discovered that Krypton was doomed and had convinced some people to build a space arc, Brainiac showed up and took Kandor, which is where the space arc and all of Jorel's supporters were. And although Jorel and Lara did give birth to a son, there was no one left on the Science Council who believed Jorel, so he was basically on his own. Also, by this point, Tomar Ray had exhausted the entire sector's supply of Stellarium so he had to fly out to another planet orbiting the star Ariel. Unfortunately, Tomar was so busy mining the Stellarium that he didn't notice the star was about to go nova, which temporarily blinded, temporarily blinded the Green Lantern. So while he used his ring to gather what little Stellarium he had mined, he wields his ring to fly him back to Krypton. Meanwhile, below, Jorel and Lara are placing their infant son in a rocket. Tamar nears the planet, and his sight returns just in time for him to watch the planet explode, which sends him into a shock. Tomar is brought back to Oa and recovers inside the power battery and the guard while the Guardians were guiding Kal-El's ship to Earth. And while Kal-El was intended to lead the Green Lantern Corps, he became a bit of a titan. And when the universe creates a titan, it is probably because the universe has greater need of him than the Guardians do. So Tomar did not fail. His actions helped give the universe a Superman, so the Guardians tell him that he can retire in peace. Now, I thought that this was an actually a great story. Uh, it revealed some behind-the-scenes events without making any changes to the established Superman ori origin story. The art was great for the most part, and I'll note uh, one of the spots that I had a problem with. And I really did find myself feeling sorry for Tomar Ray and... Pretty much. If I, I think if a story can elicit a feeling that isn't, I hate this story, I think that that's pretty good. Um, on page two, I like the, how the beginnings of the Green Lantern Corps, or at least the beginnings of an independent Green Lantern Corps, gets tied to Superman's origin. I think that's pretty cool. It helps with a united universe, since it still wasn't too common at DC at this point. On page three, I like how Tomar Ray wants to help uh, the Kryptonians, and is really frustrated that he can't do so overtly. Basically, he doesn't want to uh, go against orders from the Guardians, but it's all because of Kryptonian independence, and also because he can't save the planet or it'll cause even more problems. And on page 7, panel 1, here's that art problem I was mentioning. Uh, apparently, Kal baby Kal-El is the size of a small puppy. Lara basically is holding him in the palm of one hand. Well, she's got two hands, but it looks like the second hand is just holding up more of those blankets. But newborn, even newborn babies are bigger than this. And this was supposed to be Kal-El at, like, what, age one and a half or two or something by the time he left Krypton. So, yeah, that's kind of weird. But other than that, like I said, it was a really great story, and I highly recommend it. And the fact that it was a great story is probably why it's been reprinted a few times. So I'm going to play a couple more promos, and I'll be back with World's Finest, number 214. After these messages, we'll be right back. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. We were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the mystic guardians of the universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. 
the best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. For the latest news and rumors for all things DCU, listen to the world's best podcast. And remember, stay, stay super. super. Okay, World's Finest, number 214, had an on-sale date of August 15th, 1972, and another price of 20 cents, with art by Nick Carty on the cover. And the title of this one is A Beast Stalks the Badlands, written by Stephen Skeets and Denny O'Neill, penciled by Dick Dillon, inked by Joe Gaiella, and edited by Julie Schwartz, and unfortunately this story has never been reprinted. Which is kind of a shame. So Clark Kent has been assigned to cover the graduation exercises at a school for rodeo performers, and we learn that Clark is not a fan of rodeos due to their cruelty to animals in the name of entertainment. He is, however, glad to see Vigilante again, since he's been booked as a guest to do some fancy shooting. Cut to Clark interviewing Vigilante as a mysterious stranger walks along behind them. Realizing the camera got a good look at his face, the stranger sneaks over to a gate and cuts the rope that's keeping it closed, causing the cattle inside to escape in a stampede. With the stampede heading toward the crowd, Clark quickly gets into the mobile newsroom, changes to Superman, and while using a remote camera on the news van and a mic on his uniform to continue reporting as Clark, Superman uses heavy-duty wire to create a lasso large enough to corral the stampede. But since he lost about half his powers way back in number Superman 242, Superman has to struggle to stop the, cri the animals, the criminals. But he does eventually succeed. Meanwhile, Vigilante has gone after the guy who cut the rope and the young lady following him. Eventually he catches up to them, but the young man, Johnny, is arguing with the girl, Martha, begging her to use her, her rifle to kill him. She eventually gives in, but before she can pull the trigger, Vigilante uses his six-shooter to shoot it out of her hand. After unloading it he, and sees that it has a silver bullet, Johnny notices the full moon rising and runs off. Vigilante gives chase and tackles him, but not before Johnny turns into a werewolf and throws Vigilante off of him and runs off again. Vigilante attempts to wing him, but Martha kicks his gun out of his hand, so they both give chase and chase Johnny into a cave, but he ambushes them from behind, and while Vigilante tries to shoot him, the sound of the gunfire causes a cave-in. Meanwhile, Clark realizes that the gate rope had been cut, and determines that he must have caught something on his camera that someone didn't want to see. Unfortunately, the camera was trashed by the stampede, and the film was damaged. Fortunately, he knows someone who should be able to help him out. So flying to Gotham City, Superman watches as Batman makes short work of a trio of acrobatic criminals. Then after a short greeting, Batman takes Superman back to the Batcave to check out the video. And when Batman sees Johnny on the screen, he recognizes that Johnny appears to have like lycanthropy. In other words, he's a werewolf. So Superman takes off, believing the vigilante went after whoever cut the rope, and searches the area for his motorcycle. Finding it, he also finds the cave where he's trapped under a bunch of rubble. Unfortunately, Martha is also out, and Johnny Wolf, which is what I'm going to call him for the rest of the story, Johnny Wolf is closing in on her. Fortunately, Superman breaks in to stop him, but due to Johnny Wolf's magical nature, he's giving Superman a good fight and appears to be beating the Man of Steel. Vigilante remembers the silver bullet, but it won't fit in his pistol and the rifle is out of reach. Or is it? 
Removing his belt, he flings the buckle end toward the rifle, catching the sight on the end of the barrel. He drags the rifle to him, loads it, but by this time, Superman and Johnny Wolf have gone around a corner. So hoping that the shadows he sees on the wall are accurate, he fires the bullet at the wall where it ricochets back to the fight and hits Johnny Wolf. Superman then frees Vigilante and the heroes note that although Johnny has died, he at least died as a human. Okay, the first thing I want to point out is that the writing on this was split up. Basically, for whatever reason, Skeets wrote the Superman half of this story, and O'Neill wrote the Vigilante half, although he did, have to ha he did have to have Superman in the story at the end. Now, I don't know why, unless it has something to do with, uh, with Denny being fed up with Superman and quitting the Superman book a little while back. I'm not completely sure. I have nothing to back that up. It's just a guess. I also liked, um, concerning it's a Superman book, that the young people that Superman and the Vigilante were going after were named Johnny and Martha, a.k.a. Jonathan and Martha. You know, like the Kent. See how it all works? Oh, that's so great. Anyway, page two, we learn about Superman's views on rodeos, which actually kind of makes sense considering his upbringing in Smallville. Uh, granted, he would also know about slaughtering and all that stuff, but it still kind of makes sense. Page three. How did Johnny not realize where he was walking? I mean, he literally would have had to walk through a crowd of people watching the Clark and Vigilante interview in order to get that close so that the camera would see him. That's just weird. On page 7, this is the first reference to Superman's lower power level since Superman 242. Also, it's possibly the last one, and I thought that was interesting since this was the part written by Skeets, unless O'Neill had a little bit more to do with the plot than it would seem. On page 16, because I don't have anything to say about them in the middle there, uh, page 16, it's very considerate of Superman to just stand around and let Batman take care of the bad guys, since he wasn't going to, since at the beginning of the fight, Batman was actually taking a few hits. But then again, I don't think I've ever read a comic in which Superman was happy to accept help from anyone, so it was probably for the best. And on page 17, we learn that apparently Johnny has the obvious symptom, uh, uh, has the obvious look of someone with lycanthropy, which, by the art, appears to be a unibrow. Yeah. So this means that I actually know several werewolves, some of which are family. That's fantastic. And uh, if any of my family are listening to this, which they probably aren't, love you. So, well, this is going to be the last issue of World's Finest that I'm going to be covering on this show. Uh, starting next issue, it goes from a Superman team-up book to a book both starring Superman and Batman again. While normally that's not a huge problem, um, it doesn't. it no longer makes it a mainly Superman book much like Justice League or Jimmy Olsen or Lois Lane. So I'm going to take it off the table unless it at some point crosses over with the main books or has something to do with the main books, which does not appear to happen too much. Um, also, another reason that I decided to do this um, is because next issue begins the saga of the Super Sons. And uh, while I know it has its fans, I am not one of them at all. And I don't want to bring that much negativity to the show. So for the near future, it's just going to be Superman and action with occasional specials and other stuff along the way. Until we get up to 1970, uh, I think it's 8, when DC Comics Presents comes in. But until then, it's just going to be the two books for a while. So that's going to be a load off my mind. And so with that done, here's a couple more promos and we'll get into action comics. Right hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what?
Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel, and more. SupermanHomePage.com Superman is a copyrighted feature appearing in Action Comics magazine. Okay, Action Comics 417, which had an on-sale date of August 31st, 1972. Once again, it's got a cover price of 20 cents and cover art by Nick Carty. The cover story is The Conspiracy of the Crime Lords, written by David George, who is actually Leo Dorfman. Penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Murphy Anderson, and edited by Murray Boltonoff. And like most of the other action comic stories, this story has not yet been reprinted. Deep in the remote Andes Mountains, the villainous Lex Luthor enters the world's first anti-Superman fortress, and is soon joined by Brainiac, Grax, who was last seen in Action 342, and the Marauder, last seen in Action 378, both of which were before this show started, so you'll, if you want to read more about that, you're either going to have to look them up online, or wait until Billy Hogan gets that far on his show, uh, Superman Fan Podcast, which he is covering the Silver Age, but he's nowhere near that yet. Anyway, the villains sit down to discuss why they're there, and suddenly Superman bursts in. They quickly attack him, but soon learn that it's actually just a Superman robot created by Luther so that they could have some fun. Then, after discussing how much they hate Superman, they point out the large amounts of weaponry that they have gathered, and they check out the statues they've made to show what they do to his friends if they ever fell into their hands. And for the record, it appears that they would electrocute Lois, hang Jimmy, and put super uh, superman <laughs> and put batman in the guillotine they then realize that despite all of this they need to make a truce with the man of steel but how to contact him obviously he responds to trouble so brainiac fo focuses his cryogenic projector beam on a globe meanwhile in metropolis clark kent is trying to get out of a parking ticket because of a flat tire but the officer says that it doesn't matter because he's still in a no parking zone so after the officer leaves, Clark uses his heat vision and super breath to repair and reinflate the tire. 
Getting back into the mobile newsroom, Clark hears about the Niagara Falls freezing on a 75 degree day and decides that this sounds like a job for Superman. So parking the newsroom over a manhole in an alley, he changes to Superman and flies out to Niagara Falls. But before he can do anything, the villains project their faces onto the ice wall, and after explaining how Luther and Brainiac survived after their last appearance in Force 13, and spoiler alert, Brainiac's self-destruct was actually a disintegrator that had a feedback effect to reintegrate them after Superman had left the area. Yeah. The villains offer a truce. Superman doesn't believe them, which makes sense, and after punching at their faces in the ice, uses his heat vision to melt the ice and things return back to normal. But the, the villains refuse to give up, so Marauder trains his mental helmet on a weather pattern generator to create a tsunami in Coral Bay. This again gets Superman's attention, but by the time he arrives, the storm has ended. However, all the ships that were in port have been rearranged to spell out the message, Superman, we want peace, your four foes. So after towing all the ships back to port, Superman reiterates that while he wants to believe them, he just can't bring himself to actually do it. From all sides, Superman finds himself bombarded by people telling him he should accept the truce, but keeps refusing. That is, until Lois talks, him, until Lois talks to him, and he says, okay, for you, I'll do it. Which I think is, for, eh, I'll get that, that in a minute. So wearing special glasses that lets him trace the massive amounts of energy that, uh, that must have been used in order to perform the earlier weather-related stunts, Superman busts into the anti-Superman fortress. Once there, the villains reveal that while visiting the Phantom Planet a week ago, he was affected by the mysterious Phantom Effect. And now every time he performs a super feat, a super phantom of Superman is created that wreaks havoc. At that point, a super phantom bursts into the fortress, created from when Superman burst into the fortress himself. See how that works? This phantom is soon joined by more super phantoms, and they split up as they leave the fortress. So, once the villains get into their respective vehicles, Superman leads them into battle against the super phantoms. To be continued. Alright, page one. I kind of like Lex's outfit here. It's better than the prison grays, and it doesn't have the color of the purple outfit he would sport later. Although... And I don't know if it's just nostalgia talking or what it is, but I still kind of like that purple one better. It's no, you know, super-powered green armor suit, but the purple and green just kind of was cool. Page 5. We actually get some pretty gruesome depictions of the death of Superman's friends. I mean, they're, they're not actually dead, but um, the fact that they actually have Jimmy, you know, with the noose around his neck... Batman in the guillotine and Lois sitting there with the chair, pretty much ready to shock, shock her to death. It's pretty gruesome. I kind of wonder if Kurt Swan kind of got to do that, for, had fun doing that, concerning he'd already, by this point he'd already been drawing the characters for almost 20 years. And on page 11, actually more than 20 years, uh, page 11, Superman actually mentions Flip Wilson, which I think is one of the few times Superman makes a pop, a pop culture reference in the Bronze Age that actually uh, has something to do with a real-life character instead of a in an in-universe character. Overall, I'm, I'm thinking I completely agree with Superman here. I would never believe that my worst enemies really want a truce. Uh, but the annoying part was how just talking to Lois made him change his mind faster than a speeding bullet. I mean, she's only in two panels. Two. Anyway, other than that, I thought this was a pretty good story, with great Swanderson art as usual. Still wondering why Dorfman is using yet another name, though. I mean, for those keeping count, this is the third name he's used in Action Comics alone. I don't know if he's used any others anywhere else, but he's got Leo Dorfman, which, if that's his real name, uh, he was going by Jeff Brown when he was writing some of the backup stories in Action, and now he's got David George for no reason whatsoever. Maybe he's got a multiple personality disorder. I don't know. Anyway. And the backup story in this book is The Kid and the Corruptors, 
written by Bob Haney, art by John Kalman, and ink, inked by John Kalman, edited by Murray Boltonoff, and again, this story has not yet been reprinted. It's Christmas Eve at the mansion of Simon Stagg, as the occupants welcome a new guest, Randall Stagg, Simon's nephew. He is the son of Simon's brother, Beowulf. Yes, Beowulf who recently died in Alaska, and has left Randall in Simon's care. So Simon shouts, Merry Christmas! Which apparently is the signal for Java, his Neanderthal butler, to tumble down the chimney in full Santa gear. God bless everyone. In the following weeks, the mood in the Stag Mansion is happier than usual due to the young, new resident. Meanwhile, Simon Stagg has been working on a top-secret project for the government. One day, Randall gets a phone call, and Rex, metamorpho, swears that he can hear bells playing. The next day, while Simon is working in his lab, Randall sneaks in to take pictures of his uncle for his scrapbook, and is almost fried by some mysterious, not-identified hot goop, but is saved by metamorpho using a cobalt mitt. When Randall tells Simon that the scrapbook is about the guy he admires most, i.e. Simon, Simon is honored, but tells Randall that for his own safety he needs to stay out of the lab. The next day, Randall once again gets another phone call, and Rex hears bells playing over the line again. This time he follows Randall, who returns to Stagg's lab, and this time takes pictures of Stagg's formulas and plans for that government project. Rex tries asking him what's going on, and Randall zaps him with a pinlight laser, which turns Rex into a puddle of goo, basically. Using all of his available willpower, Rex slowly follows the child-sized footprints over muddy ground until he finally catches up to Randall, who has given his pictures over to a couple of foreign spies. This, his, part, his part of their plan complete, they decide that they're going to need to kill Randall since he'd be able to identify them once his brainwashing wears off. Rex tries to shout to Randall to run, but the kid is still stuck in his trance. Unfortunately, this draws the attention of the spies to begin stomping on Rex. After sufficiently stopping him, in, stomping him into the ground, they turn their attention to Randall, but again mustering up as much willpower as he can. Rex tries a, a last-ditch effort and creates a bell and hammer and plays the pattern he'd heard going over the phone, but backwards. Uh, fortunately, because there's only one of the pages left in the story, this releases Randall from his trance, and he uses his penlight laser to melt the spies' guns, causing them to surrender. Later, we learn that the spies had befriended, befriended Randall in Alaska after his dad had died and conditioned him through hypnosis and electronic signals so that they'd obey their orders after hearing a certain pattern of bells. So Simon tells Randall that he's proud of Randall for stopping the spies, and Randall reveals that he has a new hero now, Metamorpho, which, of course, surprises Simon. I don't have much page-by-page page notes here, but this was not a bad story. It it makes sense. It doesn't have anything super wacky like a lot of Bob Haney stories does, and it doesn't feel rushed. The art isn't quite as good as it ha uh, isn't quite as good here as it has been, but I have seen worse. It's nice to see Simon take a back seat again. He's not even that annoying when we see him this time, which is really nice. Hopefully, this doesn't mean he'll be twice as bad next issue. Um, but I'm curious to see if Randall sticks around, though, because it's, I don't know. He's a new addition to the cast, but it's just not, some, not one that I've heard much about, while I have heard about the others, so I don't know. Um, and that's it for the comics this time. So enjoy a couple more promos, and we'll be right back with the ad. After these messages, we'll be right back. Why, hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis? You have permission to come aboard my den of nerd erotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of trying once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of Strip Fizzbin. Let me loosen that strap. 
Hey suckers, Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? Do you like that too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable damn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and and Harry Potter and M... 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 The Oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your over to the Two True Freaks podcast at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, all right? All right? Good. You can get there on the internet and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a damn t-shirt? Remember, Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. week on the 20 minute long box I submit myself to the powers of randomness and review a title from my collection completely at random and all within 20 minutes. It's the super compressed podcast for the decompressed written for trade age. Join me Steve Lacey each week at 20 minutes longbox.libsyn.com or find me on iTunes. Okay. The ads this month. Inside the back co- or inside the front cover, we get another prizes or cash just for selling cards. And again, it's the same ad we've seen before. With, you know, sell a certain number of kids and you can get a sleeping bag or a TV or record player or a dune buggy, walkie talkies, basketball, that kind of stuff. Well, let's see. Um. After page six, we have Kenner's Supersonic Power Racer, featuring Hercules. That's right. Apparently, you set up a fake, fiery hoop, and set up a ramp, and you set up Caesar's snap-together columns. You pull, try to get Herc to jump, through the ring of fire, and between the columns... The skill and thrills are yours. They also have other stunt, stuntmen for the SSP cars. Movin' Marvin, who looks scared out of his eye, uh, mm-hmm, who looks really scared, and get this, they have one called Knight Rider. It's not Michael and Kit, it's um, just a car with a, a knight on it. But it's Knight Rider. I thought, <laughs> that's actually pretty interesting. The first Knight Rider. And let's see. Ooh, we get one of those pages with a ton of different ads. You could get a seven-foot monster. Magic cards. See, glasses that allow you to see behind you. The Beast from 20 Fathoms poster. Also King Kong. Um, the Jackpot Bank. The Werewolf Mask. Onion Gum. A Raquel Welch Pillow, which is spooky. A joy buzzer, secret book safe, secret spy scope, skinhead wig, x-ray specs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, at the end of the first story of the book, we have Read DC's Best, which has an issue of The Flash and an issue of Justice League of America, which I will probably be mentioning, in fact I will be mentioning in just a few minutes, so I'm not going to mess with that here. We have a new, a, a new ad after the letters page. Superhero stick-ons. Stick your favorites up against the wall. Or door, notebook, lunchbox, or car. Which I don't think my parents would have ever let me do that. And for $2, you get all 14 of these stick-on pictures. And they've got Wonder Woman, Supergirl, Aquaman, Hawkman, Green Lantern, Batman and Robin, Flash, another Batman, another Superman, 
and Green Arrow. But anyway, this is an ad that's going to show up many times in many books. And let's see, we have, what does this champion have in common with you? Apparently he was skinny. He answered, oh, wider, sorry, I thought I said wiener, wider ad. Gained three inches on his arms, four inches on his chest, and in seven short weeks, you could too. And now he looks like a freaking Mr. America. And that just looks messed up. And, of course, they tried to color over a black and white picture and don't do a very good job of it. Let's see. And then we'll get another one of those ads for those embroidered cloth patches that tell it like it is. You remember, this is the one with the bunny and the love and the peace symbol and all that's the soul symbol. STP. Flash Gordon, because that makes sense. I guess you got to get one patch for the nerds. Uh, then you have another two-part page. The top half is three big drafting kits given to you. You get like a drafting board with a slide rule and stuff. Uh, number two has a drafting table. And number three looks like it's just a bunch of the utensils. And uh, yeah, that's for your future in drafting. That guy looks really happy too. Uh, bottom half is football related. You can get pro football pennants. I do have my Redskins. And this was, wow, I forgot how old this is. This is back in the days when the Redskin helmet, because I'm a Washington Redskin fan, sorry. But the Washington Redskin helmet had the arrow with the feather hanging off of this before they actually had a Indian guy's head on it. And uh, you can get an NFL pro football practice jersey in youth and adult sizes. And what they show is one from the Los Angeles Rams. You can get uh, an official football helmet key tag. And the, in, the one they show is the Kansas City Chiefs. 75 cents per team. You can get an official NFL team bike tag. You can also get playing cards. Which is actually pretty cool considering this is the 70s before all that got big. You got the 100 piece toy soldier set. And last, uh, inside back cover is another one of those ads. Look, Mom, we're winners. By selling stuff, we get prizes, which they do a lot back then. And the back cover has the Aurora Mean Racing Machines, which means we finally got away from the souped-up construction equipment. This time, we have, they, they do transform. And this time, we see a yellow Volkswagen Beetle, much like Bumblebee from Transformers. And by the time he gets from the back of the cover to the front of the back cover, because it's kind of a 3D thing going on, um, a guy has popped up in the back. The front has extended out, and you can now see the engine. And some exhausts have, are now sticking out of the sides, and it now looks like a big drag racer. It's pretty cool, if you like that sort of thing. And elsewhere in the DC multiverse this month, we have Date with Debbie, number 18, which is one of those Archie books. Falling in Love, number 137, with a quiz to find out if you are a nice girl. Forever People, number 11, featuring the return of the Infinity Man. Our Army at War, number 250. Swing with Scooter, number 36, the other Archie book or Archie kind of book, From Beyond the Unknown, number 19. Uh, Ghosts, number 8, featuring The Thing and the Clock. Weird Western Tales, number 14, which has a really cool Tony DeZanuga color, cover, uh, featuring Jonah Hex tied up in the desert near sunset without a shirt on, which isn't my favorite part. But he's got a snake heading towards him, which builds the tenseness. Or... Makes it tense or builds up the tenacity. Anyway, Weird Worlds, number two, featuring John Carter of Mars. We have The Witching Hour, number 24. Young Romance, 187, featuring contests galore. Batman, number 245, featuring Bruce Wayne murdered. Politician accused. But, Bruce, but Batman can't prove it. Because Batman killed Bruce, which makes no sense. And it's a cover by Neil Adams' Dick Giordano, and it doesn't look all that good, which also makes no sense. We have G.I. Combat number 156, featuring the haunted tank, kicking butt. 
Jimmy Olsen, number 153, featuring Murder in Metropolis. And it looks like Jimmy's dead, but Jimmy's also with Superman, so what's going on? We have Swamp Thing, number one. Yes, people, Swamp Thing. This is, is this his first appearance? Yep, first appearance of Swamp Thing ever. And it's an awesome Bernie Wrightson cover of, Han of Swamp Thing coming up out of the murk while the old-looking balding guy holds a gun on him while also holding on to a young blonde woman. But it's really cool. So Swamp Thing starts here. Flash 218. You might remember that I mentioned that a little earlier. The Flash of a Thousand Faces. And because, and apparently he doesn't know who he is under that mask. And he's about to reveal himself, well, his face, in front of a bunch of people. Plus, in Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Green Arrow is dead. So that that's that's the title. I don't know. I don't think that actually happens. But uh, Secrets of Sinister House number seven, with an interesting story of a little girl riding on what appears to be a dragon. Okay. Uh, let's see. With Justice League of America number one hundred two, which I also talked about a little bit ago. And in this story, for the Earth to live, one of us must die. And apparently, this is going to be the end of a Justice League. Justice Society crossover. But the question is, who's going to die? Uh, New Gods number 11. The shocking secret revealed in Darkseid and Sons. And the cover's got a really awesome looking cover of with um, Calabac and Orion fighting. And it looks really cool with Black Racer coming up behind them. Could one of them die? We have Star Spangled War Stories number 20 featuring... The Unknown Soldier. Young Love, number 100. With a, with a quiz for Do You Ask Too Much of Him? Heartthrobs, number 146, in which the stars predict your love life. Superboy, number 191. And there's a little girl at the bottom of the ocean. Kid with the super brain. Uh, Inferior 5, number 12, which is the final issue of that book. And The House of Mystery, number 207, with another cool Bernie Wrightson cover and the, with a guy that doesn't have a... that has full arms and a head, but a skeleton for his midsection. Hmm. Demon, number 2, which actually also looks really cool and is still Jack Kirby. We have Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, number 127, in which, which actually has an interesting cover. Superman is saving a, finds a boat by itself in the ocean. Meanwhile, beneath the ocean, Lois is underwater in a bikini. And while we don't, while she's making bubbles, they don't appear on the surface. And there's a shark heading right for her. So that's pretty cool. House of Secrets, number 101. Um, with a really gross-looking creature of some kind looking in the window as a guy types something on the typewriter. But the guy typing knows because he's kind of trying to look behind him without, you know, turning his head. Looks really cool. Girls in Love, which is not the title of this book. It's Girls Love Stories, number 174. Test yourself. Your parents treat you like a child. Which really doesn't make it much of a test. It's kind of an opinion. But Commandy, Last Boy on Earth, number one. Another Jack Kirby book. And the title of the story is The Last Boy on Earth. <laughs> Original there, Jack. Um, but it's, a, it's another cool Jack Kirby cover. Commandy looks awesome. Unexpected, number 140. The Anatomy of Hate. Adventure Comics, number 424 with Supergirl in the crypt of the frozen graves. And she's on Earth, and you see all these guys that appear to be dead, but they're in, like, these ice cylinders. That's actually kind of cool-looking. Detective Comics number 428. Superman, fight, Superman is not in this book. Batman fights the toughest cop in Gotham with a really cool 
Mike Kaluta cover. Batman looks ticked. And finally, Tarzan number 213. Uh, featuring Tarzan in Baloo of the Great Apes. He doesn't look like Baloo from Jungle Book, I'll tell you that much. And that's it for this month. Uh, thank you again for downloading this episode, and make sure to come back in just two weeks for the next thrilling episode, which will feature a surprise guest host and also include another big change for the show. They just keep coming, don't they? So thank you for listening. Hope you all have a great couple of weeks. And here's Angie. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where new episodes are posted weekly. Episodes are also posted at superbronze1970.lipsyn.com and supermanhomepage.com. You can also subscribe to this show via RSS feed and iTunes. All images, characters, and music used in the show are for entertainment purposes only. No money is made by the show. Superman is created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Superman is also a copyrighted feature, appearing in the Superman DC publications.